This is I Spy, a show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. I said to him, you know, if one of these groups that you sell to were to detonate one of these devices, that would create such fear globally and that environments of fear create more autocratic governments, not fewer. And, you know, he at some stage said, if only there was something I could do about it. And there was this very pregnant pause where I think he and I both knew that there was and that this was going to be the moment that we would talk about it. From Foreign Policy, welcome to I Spy, real-life spy stories told by the people who were there. Each week, we feature one former intelligence operative from somewhere around the world describing one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. On today's show, Amaryllis Fox, an undercover agent whose job at the CIA was to cultivate arms dealers and prevent them from selling fissile material to terrorist groups. Fox began her career after the attacks of September 11th, when the agency's biggest fear was the possibility that al-Qaeda or other groups would obtain weapons of mass destruction. She was in her mid-twenties when she struck up a relationship with a Hungarian arms dealer named Jakob. His ties to terrorist groups in Indonesia and elsewhere raised alarm bells at Langley. Fox has changed some of the details of her story to avoid exposing the agency's operatives and assets. She begins where undercover missions often begin, with the crafting of a cover story. In order to get after the targets that I was working on, the typical cover story of working for the U.S. State Department rather than working for the intelligence community doesn't really get you much with terror groups. I mean, from their perspective, if you work for the U.S. government, you know, that's no bueno. (laughs) The distinction between working for the State Department and working for the intelligence community is a nuance that doesn't particularly matter when you're trying to build a relationship with a a courier or somebody else who has access to a terror group. Uh, And so in order to get close to those kinds of targets, um, you have to look for something that makes more sense, puts you next to the people you want to be next to, but also explains why you're there as, in my case, a a 20-something-year-old white girl. Uh, And many of the parts of the Middle East that I was traveling in, that wasn't a a typical uh, profile. And certainly the the kind of people that I would be rubbing shoulders with in the proliferation game weren't accustomed to seeing a 20-something-year-old white girl running around in their neighborhoods. And so the guidance was, you know, really lean into that, try to figure out something that explains why you're there rather than uh, having to kind of encourage people to look away from the fact that you have this very different profile turn into the skid, as it were. And my family has loved art for a long time and collected it. My sister studied art and had done a little stint working at Sotheby's. And it was something that um, we all had a lot of background in. And so to be able to lean into my family's interest in art and paint myself as 
you know, something of a, of a young, maybe even a little bit frivolous, uh, 20-something-year-old girl who was making ends meet by, uh, by working in the art world explained why I would be in these far-flung parts of the Middle East where there was suddenly an emerging art scene. And so I set about creating a, a, a fictional art consultancy. And, you know, these fictions become real very quickly because you spend as much or more time uh, doing your cover work than you do actually conducting operations in order to seem non-alerting to anyone who's watching you. So I, I moved to Shanghai as my first full deployment undercover um, as a clandestine service officer. My work was to be throughout the Middle East, and China was just a home base. And the agency had briefed us before we landed on the ground to assume that the hotel room we'd be staying in while we were looking for a house, and then eventually whatever house we moved into would be wired for surveillance, audio, visual, the whole nine yards. And I was newly married at this point to a fellow officer, uh, newly pregnant with my husband. The agency is pretty old-fashioned when it comes to co-deployments. So if you want to be out on the tip of the spear with anybody else, you better be married to them. And I remember really clearly lying in bed, suffering from jet lag just like anybody else. Um, but also from this kind of gnawing feeling that the walls and the mirrors and the blinking light on the fire smoke detector and the ceiling are all watching me, are all lenses through which Beijing is keeping an eye on us. And the clock went 2 and 3 a.m. Uh, my husband was asleep beside me. And even if he had been awake, we wouldn't have been able to, to talk about this anxiety that we both certainly were feeling, um, but had to just play off our trip as ordinary art dealers. So I lay there in this bed watching the blinking light on the smoke detector in the ceiling and trying to count it like you would count sheep, trying to ease my, my nerves and fall asleep. And in the end, I couldn't, and I got out of bed and kind of padded into the bathroom. And I remember really distinctly hearing the guidance that Langley had given us in my head, and they had said, just pretend to be yourself. And they hadn't said it with any irony, but I was standing in this bathroom kind of realizing that when I asked myself, what would I do if I were really me? I didn't know the answer. It had been a while since I had really been me. And the layers upon layers of fiction that come into play when your friends, your family don't know what you do for a living, when your colleagues are on the other side of compartments that are designed to keep everybody's identity secure and information secure, it's a very lonely way to spend your 20s. And it's very easy in those many layers of fiction to lose track of who you really are underneath. You know, as a young married couple going about building an ordinary looking life, we were constantly aware that anything we said or did was being observed and that our job was to make it look as though we didn't know we were being observed. So it was a little bit of a Truman Show 
meta kind of experience. And, you know, anybody will tell you when you ask for advice about how to make a, a young family work, you know, the advice is always communicate. Uh, and that's a bit tricky when, when you're in an environment where everything is being surveilled. When we think of nuclear proliferation, the scenario that first pops into most people's mind is, you know, an attack from a rogue state from North Korea, Iran. Uh, and those programs were largely supplied, I think it's fair to say, during the 90s uh, and early 2000s by a network that is known as the AQ Khan network, Abdul Qadir Khan. And he was a Pakistani scientist who philosophically believed that any state should be able to have the bomb if any state had the bomb. In other words, no one state is more or less entitled than another. And when the AQ Khan network began to be dismantled, the result was good in preventing proliferation for rogue states. But one of the dangers that arose was that all of a sudden the dealers that hadn't been arrested, they needed other customers. And the other customers that were readily interested in stepping up to the plate were non-state actors, um, so primarily terror groups. Jakob was part of a large network of dealers that were all looking to hawk nuclear materials. And our job was really to assess which of them had access to actual technology the vast majority of people who look to make money in this game either are fraudsters who don't have access to technology at all or are trying to sell something that is long decrepit that doesn't work or requires access to some other piece of technology that they don't have. Um, and so sorting out who actually had access to the kind of technology that could pose a threat if it changed hands is, was the first step. And Jakob appeared to be one of those from the information that we had from others in the network. And so we set about trying to set up a meeting and ultimately did so by having a source who we worked with in another terror group vouch for us so that there was a sense that this was an actual approach from people who might be serious prospective buyers. And that was how he agreed to our first meeting. The funny thing about Jakob is that before I ever saw him, uh, I heard him. I heard him singing. And he was walking down a street in Lyon in France. I could see him. Uh, a few yards out ahead, but only from behind and in shadow. And so I could hear his voice before I could actually make out the features of his face. And he was singing this kind of Hungarian folk song. And it, it was that kind of folk song that makes you feel nostalgic, even if you're not Hungarian and you have no idea what the words are. And it was very beautiful and very wise, and it sounded almost ancient. And I was really surprised because in the brief email correspondence that we'd had, uh, he hadn't come across as any of those things. And then when I walked up and asked him for a light in order to 
approach him before he knew that it, it was me that he was talking to. I remember the, the lighter lighting up his face, and it was so startlingly incongruous with his voice. He is this kind of rectangular brute of a man uh, physically, and his voice had seemed so soulful and, uh, and beautiful and nostalgic. Uh, so there was always, in all of our interactions, I was struck by that dichotomy. The building of rapport and then trust with a potential source is really the heart and soul of clandestine service work. And it can be incredibly challenging um, and ultimately incredibly beautiful because really what you're doing is at the outset, you know, finding some common ground, some common interest, uh, some reason to meet again. And over that time, it becomes pretty apparent whether part of this person that you're getting to know is oriented toward the good fight. You know, however hidden it might be because of the circumstances that he or she finds themselves in, there is often, um, I'd venture to to say almost always, uh, some locked away compartment of this person that wants to do the right thing, that wants to leave a legacy uh, on this planet of life rather than death, of building a better future for their community, for their family, often for their children. And so the relationship building period is really a search for that. And then once it's found, um, the the cultivating of that part of them, um, enabling them to feel strong and safe enough to unlock it a little. Uh, And over the course of that time, it's important that you and the source sort of begin to slightly show a little ankle. You know, you're beginning to, to explain that, you know, you have friends in Washington or special channels to the government and that, you know, in the right circumstance, if the right thing were on the line, if lives were at stake, you would be able to call on those friends or use those channels in order to help. And that peeling of the onion, peeling away layer upon layer, continues as the relationship builds so that by the time you actually have a conversation around calling it what it is, saying, uh, I have this ability to, to link between you and the U.S. government in order to prevent the most horrific attacks the earth would have ever seen. Um, what do you say? You know, that's not a question that you want to come out of the blue. So I had a teacher in training who used to say, it's like a marriage proposal. You know, when you pop the question to your hopefully future spouse, you kind of want them to already know it's coming. Uh, And you kind of already want to know that their answer is going to be yes, or or ideally, what took you so long? And a recruitment pitch is very much the same way. You know, you you have really built a lot of trust um, in one another by the time that conversation happens. And you really want them in that moment to realize that all of this time that you've been building a relationship, that you've also been looking out for them and having their back and keeping them safe. 
You're listening to I Spy, a production of Foreign Policy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. Amaryllis Fox has slowly cultivated Jakob the arms dealer, telling him she represents people interested in buying weapons technology. At each meeting, she gets a little closer to her goal, turning the arms dealer into a CIA asset. Fox picks it up from here. I was several months pregnant when I finally made the approach to Jakob, and we'd had several meetings before this, many meetings, and uh, he did not know I was pregnant, but it gave me a reason to fly to Thailand on a, on a baby moon and to meet with him there. And it was really important that this go well because he had indicated that he had interest from the Southeast Asian brothers, which is a euphemism for groups like Jamaat Islamiyah, which was the al-Qaeda affiliate in Indonesia at the time, and other regional affiliates to that terror network. And these these were not guys that you wanted having access to anything on his shopping list. You know, Jamaat Islamiyah had been responsible for the Bali nightclub bombing and many other attacks throughout Southeast Asia and had links to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the mastermind of 9-11. And so these were really high-level players in a very dark game. And uh, it was really imperative that they not have access to this level of weaponry. And so even though I felt that a few more meetings could have been useful, it was important to, to go ahead and have that conversation in, in Thailand at that time. And I, I felt pretty sure that Jakob was ready. The hotel where we met was on the beach uh, on a small island in Thailand. Um, and it's, it's always been important to me to ensure that the hotel rooms that I meet assets in are the kind um, with a separate bedroom and, and sitting room with a door that you can shut in between. Because especially as a female officer, it just helps to... Uh, keep everything professional and make sure that you're not sending the wrong signal. Um, and so I got there early um, after doing a brief surveillance detection route to ensure that it was the right kind of setup uh, and went about plugging in my little water fountain, which is kind of a funny thing to take to meetings, but it provides really great sound masking um, because water flows differently every time. And so you're able to mask any conversation without the ability to later go back and and patch it out the way they could with a television show, for example. Um, And it's also a a very nice, peaceful setting to have a, a meeting in. As I was waiting for him in the hotel room, I was incredibly nervous because of the stakes, but oddly calm and hopeful because of who I knew Jakob to be. Deep down, I had a very strong sense that Jakob wanted to be the better version of himself. Uh, He wore a ring with a lamb on it uh, to mark his grandfather's death. It was his grandfather's ring. And when he first told me about it, he said he wore it to 
remind him not to be meek because his grandfather was a lamb and he got slaughtered by the earlier communist regime. But in the end, I think deep down he he wore it um, to honor his grandfather's bravery at sticking to his position in favor of freedom, even when he was being interrogated by an autocratic government. And ultimately, that was the path I felt that Jakob wanted to choose. For the most part, these people, despite making incredibly evil choices, um, have some ethical framework that they believe to be right, um, however warped it may be. And when, when you do a, a good, thorough, slow job of building a relationship with a potential asset in one of these groups or one of these networks, you get a sense of where those lines are and therefore which attacks would be on the wrong side of them. And it may be that nine out of ten attacks they would not help to prevent. But one particular kind of attack is egregious even to them. And often that's an attack that claims more Islamic lives than Western lives. Sometimes it's an attack that um, claims civilians or children, women. Um, and a lot of it depends on their unique history, um, their religious views, the traumas they suffered during childhood, the beliefs of their parents, so many different things that go into building an individual human being, just as is the case with any of us. And so the reason that the development process takes so long, the relationship building takes so long, is that every case is different. And it's really important to know in advance which, which attacks a given asset will put everything on the line to help prevent. Jakob came to our hotel room meeting singing, as he always did. Um, and I remember thinking, it's a shame he's going to have to stop doing that um, because it's not really the best way to approach a clandestine meeting, but there was something very beautiful about his voice. When Jakob arrived, uh, I set about going through the questions that operatives ask at the beginning of every meeting. And when we are meeting with an established asset, we can do it quite efficiently. But with somebody who hasn't yet been recruited, it needs to sort of sound more conversational. Um, so the acronym is STINK. Uh, so security is the first question. Do you know of any imminent threat uh, that we should be aware of? And of course, that's first, because if the answer is yes, you don't want to have wasted time on anything else before you get to it. And then N for next meeting. So this is if we're interrupted, you know, here's here's where I'd like to meet next or here's how we can continue this in 24 hours. And, of course, you want to get that out of the way up front in case you are interrupted. And, oh, sorry, I skipped T, which is time. So understanding how much time your asset has available uh, so that if the answer is five minutes, you know to get directly to the point. Um, and then C for cover, which is uh, making sure that both of you understand what your cover story is for being there. You know, maybe you're uh, discussing uh, a piece of art that this person wants to buy. So uh, you get all of those out of the way up front. And in the case of Jakob, he wasn't recruited yet. So uh, I had to do that 
with a little bit more sort of conver- conversational finesse instead of just checking them off in the same way that you would with, with a more established asset. He came in and kind of threw himself down uh, with exhaustion and kind of disgruntled despair at the political leadership, both in Hungary and around the world, um, as was his habit. And we talked about that, uh, about how the economy was crushing friends and family of his and how he really thought that it was no better than the earlier communist regime that had taken his grandfather's life. And I remember knowing that this was it and that uh, he was ready. And I said to him, you know, if one of these groups that you sell to were to detonate one of these devices, that would cause immense suffering for these friends and family that you're talking about. And he said, no, it wouldn't. You know, we're, we're not... We're not engaged in this war. Um, it wouldn't have any blowback for my people. And I slowly and gently pointed out that it would, that you know, the, this kind of weapon of mass destruction anywhere in the world being detonated would create such fear globally and that environments of fear create more autocratic governments, not fewer, and allow for more clampdowns like the one that had killed his grandfather, not fewer, and destroy economies, not build them up. And that the suffering he was experiencing would would only be exasperated by an increasingly fearful climate around the world. And, you know, he at some stage said, if only there was something I could do about it, you know. Uh, and there was this very pregnant pause where I think he and I both knew that there was and that this was going to be the moment that we would talk about it and I asked him you know if not us who if not now when Archimedes said give us a lever and a place to stand and we can move the world and we have that lever and we have that place to stand and it's our job now uh, to move the world in a safer direction, Jakob. And, you know, he he was fearful, but we had built an immense amount of trust. And I remember him very distinctly saying, will I be safe? What do you want me to do? Do you work for CIA? And that's the moment that you say, yes, I work for CIA. And he said, so are you going to arrest me? And I said, no. You know, we're we're old friends, Jakob. We can do far better than that. You know, we can work together to change history, to prevent a catastrophic attack. And I think I saw yes in his eyes before he said it. There's a long pause, but we got there. And he ended up being immensely useful in preventing an attack that would have cost tremendous civilian casualty count. You know, I think often the movies show the more paramilitary aspects of CIA, but in my experience, that's not really what makes the agency special. What makes the agency special is that at its best, its job is to 
listen, to befriend, to build relationships with, to find common ground with our enemies in order to make those enemies friendly enough that the attacks they're planning or the attacks that they're facilitating don't go boom. And that takes a lot of trust on both sides. But when it works, it does more to preserve national security than any military strike ever could. Amaryllis Fox served for a decade as a CIA undercover agent. She describes the experience in a new book called Life Undercover, Coming of Age in the CIA. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor is Dan Efron. Rob Sachs and Amy McKinnon helped produce today's show. The interview with Fox was conducted by Amy McKinnon. If you have tips or suggestions, please write to us. I spy at foreignpolicy.com. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Foreign Policy subscribers can go to our website to hear bonus episodes of I Spy with additional excerpts and interviews. If you're not a subscriber, go to foreignpolicy.com backslash subscribe for access to all of the magazine's great content. Next week on the show, Eugene Hassenfuss delivered arms to Contras in Nicaragua until a missile shot his plane out of the sky. Well, everything was going smooth. And then when that missile hit the aircraft, it just rolled and everything was on fire. My parachute was on my back and that back door was wide open, so I bailed out. And when I opened my chute, uh, I looked up and saw the aircraft go by. It was just nothing but a ball of flames going in. That episode next week on iSpy, I'm Margot Martindale.